schools because any good history teacher is going to provide students with different perspectives on the same event and ask them to look at the evidence and think it through for themselves without judgment you know so you're very welcome along to another edition of the staff room it's a new year and it's a new staff room uh, speaking of the new year, today's date, actually the recording date of this podcast, is the 2nd of February 2022, which means the date on the recording is 02022022. Does that surely that has to be a good thing, right? Does anybody know what that means? Don't know. Anyway, moving on. It's the same format as before. It's a half-hour program. Slight difference this time in that we have John Heffernan on board, and we're delighted to have John Heffernan on board. Uh, for the simple reason, John knows everybody. So when I spoke to John about uh, doing this and when he came on board, he agreed. And then five minutes later, he had an impressive list of names of people I should speak to. And frankly, if we get through all of the list, we'll be doing really well. And it's an exciting list to get through. First on that list was Russell Tarr. Now, Russell Tarr, according to his own website, now let me read this out to you. ActiveHistory.co.uk is the work of Russell Tarr. He says he's the head of history at the International School of Toulouse. Prior to this, he worked at Wolverhampton Grammar School. He has a degree in modern history from Lady Margaret Hall, Oxford University. Now, why am I telling you all this other than to introduce a great guest? But when I asked John about uh, Russell, I said, can you tell me a bit about Russell? He said, look, he's the best teacher in the world. And if he's not the best teacher in the world, then he's definitely the best teacher in Europe. So I said, right, I'm in. I want him. Can we, can we get him as soon as possible? Uh, Russell, you're very welcome along. And uh, as with all our guests, uh, we'll ask you to introduce yourself. My name is Russell Tarr, and I'm currently head of history at the International School of Toulouse in the south of France. Now, we read a bit of your introduction there, and it's impressive to say the least, but tell us about your journey to becoming to here now, from starting off as a history teacher to all the hops you've taken to this point. Uh, well, like a lot of people from my experience, I didn't kind of set out with any great vocation to be a history teacher. I finished my history degree and I absolutely loved that. Uh, and then after that, I wasn't quite sure what to do with it. And in fact, I, I took a year off, worked around Germany for a while just in bars. Then I actually uh, did a PGCE in history teaching, but didn't particularly enjoy it. I didn't like the head of department very much, to be frank. He just kept giving me lesson plans and didn't give me any leeway to be creative at all. So I thought this isn't the job for me. And then somehow or other, I managed to end up in an accountancy firm for 12 months, uh, which led to my Damascene moment, I suppose, when I decided that actually maybe teaching wasn't quite so bad after all compared <laughs> to bean counting. So. I applied on a whim to Wolverhampton Grammar School and just tried my luck, you know, gave it a really strong application. I tried my best anyway. And fortunately it was offered a job there. And, and from there, that's where it's progressed. It was a fantastic opportunity, wonderful school, Wolverhampton Grammar School, great colleagues, great students. Um, and it was there in my first year that I, I met my now wife. She was on an Erasmus programme. She was a, the French assistant at the time. And within a few years, We'd sort of gone as far as we could go in Wolverhampton Grammar School and there weren't really any promotion opportunities, but at the same time, it was really comfortable. So I thought, well, if I'm going to move, it's got to be to a, something very different, which is a real life change. So I thought I'm going to try and get into the international circuit rather than simply have more of the same in another school. Uh, and it so happened that an opportunity came up in Toulouse. I knew the head of department there from a conference I'd attended. And I applied for that job and we move over to the south of France and that's where I've raised our family of three children. I've been there ever since. That's 15 years now, actually. 
what's it like moving to an international um, or what's it like teaching in an international school? It was it, it's absolutely fantastic in many ways, very different in some respects. I think our school is quite particular and always has been in that it was the very first school to be fully laptop equipped. It was made the boast that it was the first fully laptop school. It was one of the things that drew me to it. Uh, and it had been that way since it was founded in 1999. So having access to technology on tap, you know, not having to book a computer room on a regular basis and finding it's been block booked by some um, you know, sociopathic colleague again, <laughs> absolutely superb, you know, so I could go into a class and know that all of my students would have access to a laptop and the internet, and that just gave me free reign. Um, in beyond that, in terms of the international dimension, at first it wasn't particularly international, we had about 70% British students, <clears throat> um, but over time it's become more and more international. We're at the school which is basically a subsidiary of Airbus, and so we cater for families of engineers who are often on short-term contracts for just two or three years. And depending on the projects, we might get a large influx, for example, of South Korean students for a few years, <clears throat> followed by a large contingent of Spanish or Indian. So as a result for a history teacher, it's, it's a real challenge, but a really interesting one to construct a syllabus, which is not just not Anglo-centric, but also less and less Eurocentric. So a lot of the materials I produce are becoming more and more global, things like the Silk Roads, Voyages of Discovery, and so on. That was uh, that challenge. That, that, that kind of ties into where I was going with that in that because it's an international school, the student, so does, how does your teaching change because of the students there are from so many different backgrounds? Uh, or does it change at all? Am I completely wrong about that? Obviously, it throws up certain challenges in terms of uh, language acquisition and so on. You have to differentiate quite a lot as far as is it ever possible. You've got to be culturally sensitive as well um, to the fact that, for example, two examples spring to mind. With Spanish students, we, we study the Spanish Civil War as part of our IB studies. Um, and some of the students are very, very engaged with that. They come from that background. I mean, we have a lot of kids whose families originally came across the Pyrenees as refugees during the Franquist regime, for example. But by the same token, a lot of them, for exactly the same reason, don't want to talk about that. And it's just off the table as, as part of a family discussion. So you have to be sensitive to the fact that although you might assume that because this is part of their national history, they'd be quite keen to engage and discuss it. The opposite is sometimes true. And the same is true for South Koreans. Um, I had one year where the GCSE compulsory source work paper was the Korean War. And so I just blundered into asking my students, well, go home and ask your parents what their opinion is of the Korean War or how their families were caught up in it. And basically got letters back from parents to the management saying this is just not appropriate. We, we don't discuss this. Uh, so I always thought I was being kind of culturally sensitive and trying to draw in their experiences. But you, you can put your foot in it sometimes without realising. But like anything, it's a process of, uh, of experience, isn't it? Uh, but it makes for a very rich sort of classroom environment because I, I can teach the Middle East crisis and have three ultra Zionists in the room from Israel. You know, that's yeah, that, that, I suppose that's that's really where I'm going with that in the, in the back of my head. Now I wasn't going to go there, but yeah, how how do you have how do you how do you teach that sensitively? Well, it, it sharpens your basic historical skills because any good history teacher is going to provide students with different perspectives on the same event and ask them to look at the evidence and think it through for themselves without judgment, you know. Um, so that, that is part of my job. I mean, I, I got a present from my grade 12 last year, actually, my, my final year students. They brought me a, a metronome, 
and that apparently was their nickname for me and they've made a series of memes for me called the metronome because I can come into a lesson and, and give them a very right-wing view of a particular event very deliberately and then the following lesson come in and say of course what I told you there was a load of rubbish and then give them a very left-wing view of exactly the same thing <laughs> and they're, they're always asking themselves well what exactly is your view on it so well, it doesn't really matter what my view is does it it's, it's the fact that I'm giving you the different perspectives but in terms of the Middle East that was one of my best examples where I had these three very you know, ultra Zionists who we once had a, a lesson where they had to divide a map between the Palestinians and the, um, the would-be Israelis, you know, the Jewish settlers at the end of World War II. And so I divided them into Palestinians and into Jewish settlers. And the, the, I'd split the ultra-Zionists between three different groups, but all three groups came back with a map which was simply shaded in one colour for yeah. the Jewish settlers. And when I said, well, what about the Palestinians? They just like spit back at me, what about the Palestinians? They're not even a people. Yeah. <laughs> so, so managing that's quite difficult, but you know, they, they ended up really fantastic students. And one of them went away and joined the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. And I had a Google Hangout with him, with my students, wow. fully expecting him to be very biased. And I primed my students to be aware of the fact mm. that he was a very subjective witness. But in fact, he'd matured considerably and had been part of a program in Israel where students um, from a Jewish background to, were mixing with students from Palestinian backgrounds together at university mm. as part of like a cultural awareness program. And his perspective on the whole Arab-Israeli conflict had very much broadened out and matured. But yeah, those sorts of experiences you don't get, I, don't, I wouldn't have got back in Wolverhampton, fantastic school though it was, um, that you know, the permanent mix of nationalities that you get in an international school makes it absolutely a, a fantastic experience for any teacher, which I'd recommend. No. And it's it's back to it's back to what what we say all the time. It's education, 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 and start with uh, start in the classroom. That's where that's where education in its true definition uh, comes yeah. about. So I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I'm going to pull back a little bit, and I'm going to talk about active history websites. Talk to me about active history website. But before that, <laughs> SESI is the Computers and Education Society of Ireland. So if we didn't talk about using technology and teaching, <laughs> I, I suppose we should shoehorn that in so talk to me first of all before we talk about active history websites talk to me about your use of technology and history in teaching sorry well it all started uh when i first started teaching in 1997 end of 1997 i was incredibly lucky that the internet was just breaking through at that point it was just becoming a thing that people were aware of and i'd always loved computers when i was a, a teenager when i had a zx spectrum i'd learned to code it and did you know made my own version of games and so on and so when I suddenly got access to the internet, what I really liked the idea of was being able to provide students in the first instance with just links to useful websites is all it was. I just uploaded one web page. And I was just thrilled with the idea that if a student was in Australia or they were stuck at home or whatever, they could just type in this long URL, as we now know them, and get this list of links. But then from that point, I very quickly became aware that it offered all sorts of other possibilities. I mean, late, in the late 1990s, as you'll know, there was, there was no real sort of interactivity as such, you know, programming languages were pretty basic on the web. It was just static pages linked together, but that still allowed me to design choose your own adventure games. So you'll be aware of these sorts of books that you have um, as kids where you kind of get, get to a position, you have to decide whether you're gonna go north or south or meet this person or trade this object. And then you turn to a particular page. Well, you can quickly construct those using linked web pages. You just don't have to go back and forth in a, in a book. So I thought it'd be quite nice to make a few historical sorts of versions of those. 
So I did one on the Battle of Hastings where you're King Harold and have to take a series of decisions and so on. Uh, one about King Charles I in the Civil War and, and so on. I made a few of them and the students just absolutely loved them. And what I, what I liked about them was the fact that the students could work through at their own pace in a way that was completely impossible for a teacher leading from the front to do. So very quickly I became aware they're putting on the headphones, listening to some you know, associated audio clips that went with the game. They could progress at different paces, having their own completely unique adventure and different experiences, forming their own different judgments of how the historical character was reacting to circumstances. And it was, it was just it was transformative for me, I thought. So from that point, and then from the fact that other schools started to use them, that was that was just really exciting. The problem came when I was spending so much time on these resources uh, that basically my, my wife said, look, you, you've got to either decide you're going to make money out of this or you're going to stop doing it. Um, and at that point, I had to take the big plunge to make it a subscriber service so that I could continue to afford putting the time in. Uh, and that's really where it started. But since then, obviously, the technology just has moved forward in such leaps and bounds. The other day, I was looking at History Review magazine. I used to, I don't know if you remember, John, but I used to write a, a regular piece for History Review on the use of ICT in the history classroom. And looking back at those, they're like, that looks like something from the dinosaur age now, where I'm, I had a whole article on the difference between search engines and directories, for example, and, and you know, which one, you should, should you use Dogpile or should you use AltaVista or should yeah. you use a new one called Google and stuff like that. And yeah, then in another one, I'm talking about this new thing coming through of Google Earth, which is obviously a big thing now. But yeah, looking back on those, you forget sometimes, I think, how quickly the technology moves on. But that's the whole fun of it in education. You, you see the potential of this new thing coming through. How can I use this? Bring it in. Keep developing the website. Using technology for teaching brings me nicely onto the active history websites. Talk to me about active history. I could spend all day, Russell, talking to you about the use of technology in education, but I, I'm, I'm kind of putting on the blinkers here. So talk to me about active history websites. Well, my active history website is just designed for the whole 11 to 18 age range. As I say, I started it in 1998. So it's quite a, it's a very well long established website, went commercial in 2003 and now has subscribers all over the world who pay for an annual access um, arrangement for all of their students. They get a login so all of their students can play all of the games, uh, all of the simulations that I mentioned earlier, access all of the worksheets, model essays and so on. Um, I use it myself all of the time. That's the whole, I think the whole appeal of my website compared to some others is that it is actually run by a teacher who is teaching students on a daily basis. So I'm testing out new resources with my students, adjusting them as necessary, and then keep on developing them in that way. So it, it came into its own, especially during the, the recent COVID pandemic as well, because when many students were locked away at home, and we were challenged as, as colleagues to provide distance learning solutions to students. I basically had a, a ready-made solution where I can say, well, that's a lot of what I do anyway, are these online simulations where students mm. work through the materials at their own pace, completing worksheets and tasks as they go, personalized learning. And yeah, it worked incredibly well. I mean, on top of that, I would add that although I've got Active History, which is the, the history-based website, I've got a second website as well, which uh, runs alongside it, which is called classtools.net. And I developed that one as from about 2005, when I started developing resources, which are or templates, really, and tools, 
which I, I was aware were not just of appeal to history teachers. So there are things where you can create online Venn diagrams, you can create online arcade games just by inputting a series of questions and answers, create fake social media profiles, fictional or historical characters, and dozens of other things. If you look at the website, you'll see there's, I think about 30 or 40 different tools I've got there. And I thought, well, I'll make those freely available to teachers around the world who aren't necessarily history teachers. And that's proven to be incredibly popular as well. It's run almost in tandem uh, with active history. And unlike, can... act, sorry, unlike active history, that isn't actually a subscriber service, but that's got, uh, that uses Google ads to help uh, keep it on track in terms of development costs. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, classtools.net. Um, thanks very much to the hidden guests behind us and poking us every now and then. Uh, classtools.net is something I've used on a regular basis and it's part of my my toolbox when I go into school so teachers say what resources do you recommend out comes the USB key fire it into the computer and the list of uh, websites and that's one of the ones that, that uh, oh, thank I've you very much uh, brilliant so moving on to uh, computer programming and so do you do you have a background in computer programming how did you learn like how you don't like this teacher is going to be listening to this and they're going to go, all of that is well and good, but how, uh, wh where does one start? Yeah, it's a good point. I, I have got something of a, a background in computer program, but only a completely amateur sense, really, uh, which is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I had a ZX Spectrum as a teenager, learned to code that as many people of my age did. Um, then sort of went off the ball. My, my brother basically blew the computer up and stuck a power cable in the back of the motherboard. And that was the end of my computer experience for the next 10 years. And then when I started PGCE, I was completely ignorant about the new generation of computers. We all had to be taught how to use a mouse, I remember very clearly by the mm. PGCE tutor, about how you pick it up and move a cursor. We thought it was magical. Yeah. That was incredible. And I remember doing my very first uh, assignment and pressing a button that then printed it out. And I'm picking it up and think, my God, it looks like it's, it's been published. It's actually you know, properly typed up and stuff. So I was very ignorant. And then I did my PGCE. I told John a little while ago, actually, that I applied for the job that uh, came up in the school where I had my PGCE placement. And the head of department didn't even give me an interview and just had a quiet word, said, look, we're looking for somebody who's got some sort of skills with computers and your skills are just not up to scratch. <laughs> Which, uh, in retrospect, is quite funny. But yeah, then when I started teaching at Wolverhampton Grammar, that's when I, I just started having a look at HTML, as simple as that, to start with, uh, get an idea of how that worked, and then very quickly picked up JavaScript, PHP, SQL. But as you say, I mean, for, for most teachers listening in, they'll say, well, that's all well and good, but you know, I'm never going to be able to, to do that or find the time to develop those mm. sorts of skills. And that, that's totally understandable. But that's why I developed something like classtools.net, where you don't need to have any programming experience at all. And of course, there are many other fantastic websites out there as well that teachers can use nowadays as, as well. But when I first started, it wasn't about even using online tools. It was just about saying, well, you can use a word processor, an incredibly flexible way in history teaching, where just give students a timeline of events. They have to color code it, categorize it, drop images in appropriately and so on collaborative essays we used to have in the late 90s where people would rotate amongst different computers right you know developing the paragraphs of each person's essay and so on so i'm not quite sure if your question is you know can you develop these programming skills and there certainly are some great tools out there the one that i had that i enjoyed particularly was called dynamic drive i don't know if you're familiar with that i one. am yeah. yeah but dynamic drive i remember back in the day was was a superb resource because it was just cut and paste lumps of code into your html page 
which you can now do with whatever tool you use to develop your website, Weebly or whatever. And you've got a lovely little piece of interaction. And if you're curious about programming, even in the most basic sense, you just have a little look under the bonnet and just look at what that code appears to be doing. And it's usually just a few lines. And then you just yeah. tweak it and then see what happens. And really, it sort of just develops from there. You learn on a need-to-know basis, don't you? And it's like with CodePen as well. There's wonderful websites like CodePen where you can just look at the code that's there and just tweak it and see what happens out of curiosity and then just develop it. And the one thing I, I hear an awful lot is I don't have the time for this. Mm. And you, may, you it's a very good point. I don't have the time to start at step zero to reprogram something or to recode a random picker or to do of course, it. Yeah. But, but there are tools there and it's about using technology as a support rather than as a crutch. So my advice to any teachers out there, and this is coming from, from a technologist like me, is ask others. especially especially the students i mean i've run training courses in the past 20 years on how to use ict effectively in the history classroom and the very first thing i always start with is that i'm not here to provide you with extra work we're all busy people Mm. all busy professionals in a very demanding environment especially at the moment and my job is to show you how ict can save you time and make your life easier And none of the students are going to look down on you or kind of have any disrespect if you just put your hand up and say, I don't know what I'm doing here. Has anybody in the room got a solution to this techie problem that we're currently having in my attempt to bring in this technology? And they're always really keen to help and just really quite thrilled that they are being brought into the process in that way. So I think it's a a good strength for any teacher, be it about your historical knowledge or your technical ability to put your hand up and say, you know what, I don't know the answer. And I think some some teachers need to be reminded of that of the power of just saying i don't know and then being open to students experiences because more often than not they know a lot more about technology than what yeah. i do even you know but there's also the definition of the the we're using technology in education so i asked i was in a primary school children between 10 and 11 12 and I said can you tell me about what technology you use in education and they're looking at me going what <laughs> what are you out about and I said well do, well wh- tell me about your class and so their idea is they'd use an iPad for collaborative learning these are adult words mm. their words is well when I write the story here Jim can edit it over in that iPad so if we remove the, the need to give everything a label, which techies do. So we need to have a virtual space and we let it melt in to the workflow in the classroom. I believe if we remove the terminology, it will be a lot less hard for teachers to get their head around. And the big fear of where do I start all of a sudden is removed because you've already started. So even if yeah. you're just setting up a, a, a classroom. So Russell, can you talk to me about your thoughts on computer programming as a subject right now in schools? I must admit, I've got very little direct experience of it. Obviously, there is computer programming and computer technology being taught in my school and ICT. Um, I'm not quite sure how the syllabus is constructed. I have taken a peaky little look at exam papers and so on. And there's still like references to logo and you know, like tortoises yeah. crawling around the floor and what you program them. And, and it strikes me as a little bit, I, I don't know, anachronistic, really. We're we still really with that. Um, and I'd I like suppose to the ma- reason I'm asking that is because in that your take on computer programming as a subject 
could be completely different to your yeah. take as computer programming to teach your subject. Hmm. I think it for, for me, I'd like more involvement in that really. I've kind of like suggested it a couple of times that you know, if you want me to come in and talk about my use of programming in my website businesses, mm. feel free to do so. If you want to talk about how I use it in these real world applications I'm bringing into the classroom, that's great too. Um, but there doesn't seem to be that much appetite for that. And I'm not quite sure what they teach within the classroom that kind of like spills over in that way. And it's a, it's a, it's a serious case. I'm always harping on about this, uh, joining the dots. So we, we really need to join the dots. And the prime example I, I always give is sitting in the staff room. And on one side of me, I had the technology teacher. And on the other side of me, I had the uh, computer science teacher. So I'm talking to the computer science teacher and they're asking me, I wonder if we could code a thing to make a wheel go around or could we code a micro bit to make a wheel go around. And on the technology teacher on this side of me is going, oh, if only I had the coding knowledge to make this piece of kit that I already have work. Mm. And I kind of have to go, well, hold on a minute. Have you spoken to each other? And this mm. is in the same staff room. So we really need to join the dots um, and we really need to be open about what we're doing in our classrooms. I think that's just a, a general thing as well, is that uh, it's always struck me when I'm talking about careers choices with my tutees, for example, that very few of us as teachers actually promote teaching as, as a subject <laughs> in itself. And I'm saying, well, think of how many professions are there where you can go into your staff room or your canteen or whatever it is, and you can sit down opposite a musician and an artist and a technologist and a linguist and a physicist, you know, all in one space. You know, that breadth of experience and skills is quite amazing and incredible, really. But at the same time, as you say, we need to engineer situations where we formally talk with each other um, to kind of highlight how we can overlap. And I've done quite a lot of that in my school where we've organized like cross-curricular speed dates where over the course of an hour, you just have seven minutes with a different subject specialist. And the challenge is simply to identify one topic area or theme that you cover with your students from grade six to 12 that maybe you could possibly collaborate on. It was, it's really valuable, you know, and some of those just run into the sand and some of them have turned into some quite fantastic projects. We do one called the Renaissance Day, for, which runs two days, for example, which I kind of chair. And that one, we look at how the Renaissance impacted upon each of our subjects. So the technology teacher or the ICT teacher looks at um, cryptography, for example, and things like that. And then we join it all together, trying to work out how these subjects were linked, how the, the developments in all these different areas during the Renaissance impacted upon each other. And the students have to do a presentation, reach a conclusion about which of the subjects was most important. And that, that's quite, you know, things like that, I think, are really important. I know you're talking specifically about building these bridges between technology and other subjects, but I think it's a, a common challenge for all teachers in all schools to kind of collaborate a bit more effectively like that and draw out. And you know what, Russell, I was that it, that's, I want the collaboration. I believe if you introduce the collaboration across the entire staff room, the technology through osmosis will spread because I genuinely don't believe the leaps. I don't believe teachers understand the leaps they've taken because of COVID using technology that's so much so this technology is secondary they're not talking about technology they're talking about teaching and technology has just happened to there to, to support them yeah. so i believe if the communication is happening with the entire staff room 
the technology itself will move around automatically, if you like. So tell us what technology are you, or sorry, yeah, what technology are you dabbling with? Well, at the moment, I always have several projects on the go. So I aim to have something to do with active history that's bubbling along, something with class tools, and then usually something else. So I'm not writing a new book at the moment. I've written three books in the past four or five years, which are selling quite well. In terms of active history, I'm just putting the finishing touches to a brand new unit on the American West, which uh, for some reason I've never properly taught before, but just yesterday launched a brand new simulation where you take the role of a pioneer heading west and you have to try and make your fame and fortune with all these random events happening to you along the way, but meeting uh, key historical characters too and learning about those. So that's really good fun. I always enjoy developing new resources like that. Uh, In terms of class tools, uh, the thing I'm working on is some single sign-in technology. I mean, the thing that I, I really loved about class tools for many years that most people who use it enjoy as well is there's, there's no need to sign on at all. So there's no student data requirements. You can just create something, get a unique URL, and then you've got your template that you've designed or your game. The problem with that is you then get people getting in touch saying, I can't find my link. I've forgotten my link <laughs> because they've got no username. That's the trade-off. They don't get it. Yeah. So I'm, trying to work that in as a as a possibility but that's quite a challenge the google sign-in is really simple Mm. facebook and twitter is a bit more of a challenge from the look of it so working i'm working on that at the moment and then my other big thing in terms of technology i suppose is is the zoom training course i'm working on because i've always done in-face training courses for the past 20 years obviously that's rather difficult at the moment in current circumstances so i took the plunge in november and decided i'd run my own two-day online zoom training course for history teachers uh, ways of bringing creative approaches uh, rather nervous about that i mean obviously i'm familiar with zoom technology but you know working in the breakout rooms and so on and all these sorts of things and polls that was the challenge for that and i really enjoyed it in the end it was a fantastic experience and i got a breadth of delegates from all over the globe which i normally wouldn't have been able to get with the result that the feedback actually was very very positive but one thing they said i could have improved further or should improve for the next course is to give them more time in breakout rooms okay which is the easiest thing in the world (laughs) for me to do you know i could set them up in breakout rooms for the entire course if that's what they wanted but it was funny that they were actually saying well you know what you should talk less you should give us less of your stuff great though it is and give us the opportunity to discuss how we're going to apply it in our different educational environments all over the world. So, yeah, working on that. The other thing, I suppose, um, not done so much of it recently, but I was quite interested in virtual reality uh, mm. stuff. Um, I can't go on field trips at the moment. So I got one of those a little camera you can stick on top of your phone. Basically, you're probably familiar with like a fisheye lens on either side. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you can take 360 degree um, photographs and even films of things and then put those on, I put them online. And what I wanted to do was that you could open them up on your phone, a whole series of them. And these were for war memorials, for example, all over the world. I got these 3D images from Google Earth, Google Maps, wherever they're hosted, put them all on one web page, And so the users could then put them into their headset and then have a, a virtual look around these memorials because I want them to design one of their own for World War One as part of their studies, you see. Uh, the challenge was you had to keep getting the phone out of the, uh, the VR headset moving to the next image and then popping it back in. So I was, I was working on some technology where they could simply shake their head a little bit and it'd move on. 
next one. Uh, like technology, you know, working out that kind of like motion technology yeah. through the iPhone. And, because and, in uh, my head, I just had a vision of a classroom full of kids going like that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing. And I, I only had two headsets anyway, so I, I, I did make use of it. But they, they really did enjoy that. Actually, it was quite fun because we'd look at the photographs of them, and then they'd have the chance to take, put on the headset. And they were completely immersed in looking at, you know, the, the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington or, or whatever it was. They have, I, 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 part of, it's funny you should say that we're, we're going off track, but I don't, I, I don't mind because we're, we're coming to the end. But one of the things that um, I was looking at was the headsets. And I'm a bit obsessed with um, immersive storytelling. So that three, 360 degree camera you, you're talking about, I decided out of the moment of madness that I'll go to a national school, a primary school, and I'll say to the kids, here's a 360 camera. I want you to tell a story like you're in the middle of it. Okay. Like, I want you to be in the center of your own story. So from a writing standpoint, they write it on a sheet of paper. And as much as a child is a child, they go, that's my story. Whereas when they build it around themselves, they themselves are the story. And that's all I told them. I didn't tell them how the technology worked. I, I just said, you push the button, you make sure you're in the middle of the story. Now tell your story. And the results were amazing. Like I got, the, granted at the time it was 500 euros and I only had, had it was lent to me. But I, a student put it in front of her and then put the football four foot back and then she took another four foot back and i was watching this going oh sugar there goes my 360 camera and she walloped got the finest kick but when you're watching this with the headset on you instinctively go where did the ball go and when you turn around you actually look her brother was in goal yeah so that's that's the immersive and I, i'm i'm a bit like I, I went on a deep dive of immersive, uh, immersive storytelling. But to answer your question in so many words to say very little, there is some of the headsets you can get that have a button on the side. Right. That you tap and, and then it will go on to the next one. Right. Although I do love the kids going around like that. that. <laughs> this, was, this was four or five years ago, actually, when I was actually doing it. It just come out and I don't think they were that readily available. I mean, one other thing connected to that, which is much simpler to use for teachers as well, and especially for history teachers and geography probably as well, I can see the appeal, is there's a great little app on, well, there's several of them, but you can get these before and after apps on your phone. Mm -hmm. So if you're on a field trip, like we went to Berlin uh, a few years ago, and we're looking at a lot of the sites connected to Weimar and Nazi Germany, you can get their phones loaded up with some historic photos of those places, and then you can lift them up and overlay them with what you're actually seeing through your camera lens. Oh, nice. Kind of slide between the two of them so we're getting kids to actually try and take some photographs of themselves at these historic sites and then when we got back it's quite an easy process for me and you can get the apps um, you know little, little code to download where you can then just embed them on your blog or your website or wiki and then just drag the bar across the screen and you get this image of the kids on their field trip and then you drag the bar and it's suddenly you're back in 1934 and there's Hitler on the same steps delivering a barnstorming speech or something you know it's yeah, quite yeah, yeah. there's something about that which really brings it to life for the students as wow we're actually there you know and you can say that on a field trip always you know on this spot this happened mm. but when they can actually literally kind of slide that bar and go from now 2022 back 70 or 80 years to that very same moment 
yeah. that very same place is, is quite amazing. And it's about it's about them. It's about the students seeing it because again, like that, we a student was asked to design a round tower. Excuse me, design a round tower. They had never seen a round tower before. They put all the measurements, all the spec into Minecraft took a headset was given to the same student and there's a video of that student with the headset on going looking at this round tower but they almost fall over because they're going up and up and up and yeah. the response is amazing because he turns around and he goes i didn't realize it was that big yeah do you know like i i think that's that's, that's it, it, well it is things like that as well where you say grade six students you've got a challenge to design your own medieval cathedral and you've, you've told them what the main features of a cathedral are that's the whole purpose of the exercise to draw that knowledge together and then you'll get some some kid who's usually quite quiet maybe and doesn't really get that involved say could i just do that in minecraft mm. and you get this every year now and i always suggest it to them now as a result and some of the videos they then come back you know they'll do like a, a walkthrough of their medieval cathedral with all of these incredible features and they're absolutely amazing. You know, there's a flyover of their Gothic yeah. cathedral or whatever, their choice of saint and rose window. But they find that much more accessible as a way of bringing it to life than like sketching on paper. I'd have no idea where to start myself. But again, going back to your point about teachers being willing to take that leap, you just say to the I always say to students, look, I don't know how you can do that. But if you want to use this application that you've just mentioned to me, which I've never heard of before, <laughs> SketchUp or whatever, as long as you know what you're doing, absolutely brilliant. You go for it. And then you get the results back, which are just wonderful. But I think you've just got to let go of that bit of control and say, and that's why I have, for example, these design, I, I get students to design their own mark schemes now because they come up with such different outcomes using different technology in different ways that it's very difficult for me to mark it by one standard set of criteria. So what I do instead is I give them a mark scheme, which simply says, look, you need to nominate three of these central skills from our IB learner profile, that being creative or resilient or whatever else, explain how your project demonstrates those things and what mark you think out of 10 it deserves, up to a maximum of 30 for your three, three different methods. And then I'll mark it on that basis. And that, that's been really fantastic too, because students are like taking control, not just of the, the tool they're using to create the outcome, but also they're telling you what skills they think they've developed or reflected in the process. And I, I'd use that more and more for students lower down the school, especially when we, we have kind of this free choice of homework projects using technology. Russell, I don't know. I, I, we, we could go on and on and on, um, but I'm going to have to wrap it there. John, is there any other questions you want me to have? I, have I missed anything? No. <laughs> I'm silent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's testament. You've 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 blown us away. You've blown both of us away. Um, I will, out of curiosity, and just see what you think. Send you that email of the 360. Uh, yeah, that'd be superb. Very interested. Yeah. It's 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 spectacular. Just to see now again, no background to the technology. Just I took one picture and I showed them how it worked, and they went off and they did their own thing. And um, I will. I will no doubt be getting one of those. I'm an absolute sucker for anything like that. I'll get straight onto the web and I'll be ordering one, no doubt, before too long. It's like when I got my, my VR headset for the first time. As I say, I was quite an early adopter and I was just in the staff room trying it out and stuff. And then my colleagues were all very excited about it as well. So anything like that, I love just giving it a go. If it works, yeah, it's, 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 I, you, you mentioned something very important there. Your colleagues are very excited about it. I put on a headset in one of my staff rooms and I can tell you there was a few people going, oh, Jesus Christ. 
<laughs> there he goes again. Well, yeah, that's exactly it. Oh, what's yeah. he doing now? <laughs> One of the things I found with those VR headsets as well, so as I said, I did the, the trip to Berlin this quite a few years ago, so it's about six years ago now. And then you take photos of the kids, these 3D photos or even little video clips, when they're like relatively young. And then four or five years later, you, you give them the headset and they're looking at themselves and their peers, you know, in this real yeah. world situation, they find that quite intriguing as well. So yeah, the, the, there's just so much potential all the time. And that's always a great thing about technology and education. There's always something new coming along for you to try and stay on top of or test out with the kids, isn't it? And I think that's the best place to uh, to end that. Russell, thank you very much for joining us on this session. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Thank you. And don't forget, anything that Russell mentioned uh, will be either on the screen through magic uh, or will be in the show notes, which we will uh, present, which we'll stick on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcast. If you want to, or if you feel that we've, there's something we've missed, please let us know. Uh, we want to hear from you. So the SESI staff room wants to hear from you. Yes, you've seen that poster. So if you're doing something exciting in your classroom and you'd like us to feature it, then by all means, let us know. Also, more and more schools up and down the country have media corners, media rooms, studios. If your students are doing something um, that you'd like a platform for, well then send them on to us. We'll connect them to the SESI staff room and we'd be delighted to help you, uh, help you out. Uh, you can get me on Twitter at uh, at Hassan on Twitter, or you can get the uh, you can get the Sessi staff room at uh, at Sessi tweets on Twitter as well. You can get us online sessi.ie, and uh, we want to hear from you. So until the next time, take care, God bless, and I'll talk to you soon. Done.